21 this morning. So if you want to grab a Bible and join me there in Acts chapter 21. You know, compromise can be one of those words that is either really ugly or really beautiful. Isn't that true? Compromise can be a very ugly thing when it means that we compromise our values, our principles, our morals, our ethics, those things that we believe in, those things that we stand on. We can compromise those things in order to take the easy way out, in order to take the coward's way out, in order to avoid conflict in an ungodly way. But compromise can also be a very beautiful word when it is a Christ-like compromise, when it is something that is motivated by love. When we don't compromise, when we don't give way on our principles or our morals, but instead we compromise on our preferences. Compromising on preferences can be a very beautiful and a very Christ-like thing, and it can be a very God-honoring thing. So compromise can be beautiful and it can be ugly all at the same time. Now here in Acts chapter 21, Paul makes an, a very significant compromise in his ministry. And he has been greatly, greatly criticized for this in the centuries since Luke has written the story of the Acts. We talked about this last week, this very difficult decision that he faced as he comes back into Jerusalem. And we talked about the motives that he had when he made this compromise. His motives were love. His motives were unity of the church. And so we believe that Paul made a very difficult decision, but we believe he took the right path. Because he's now back here in Jerusalem. He's been on this two-year mission to get back into Jerusalem because for two years now he's been collecting this offering for the Jerusalem church. You recall that the Jerusalem church is experiencing a famine. And so the people there in Jerusalem are hungry. The Christians in Jerusalem are hungry. And so Paul sees this as a golden opportunity to build unity between the Jerusalem church and the now much larger Gentile church, which has taken prominence in the Christian world by this point. And so there's a lot of animosity between the Jerusalem church and the Gentile church. Paul sees that as a bad thing. He wants to overcome that. And so he sees this famine as an opportunity for the Gentiles to show love to the Jerusalem Christians. So he goes to all, the, all of the Gentile churches and collects this huge offering and he makes it back to Jerusalem in time for the Pentecost, even though the Spirit has told him repeatedly that what awaits him in Jerusalem is something very unpleasant, something that is probably harmful to him. Agabus, in the passage last week, told him with, in no uncertain terms that you will be arrested, you will be bound. He knows that what awaits him there is something unpleasant, but nevertheless, he's rushing to get to Jerusalem. Just as, as Jesus was on a mission to get to Jerusalem, so also Paul has been on a mission to get to Jerusalem to give this offering to the Jerusalem church, and hopefully out of this comes this unity between the churches. However, it didn't work out quite that way. He shows up here in Jerusalem, he goes before the elders in our passage last week, and the elders hear of all the wonderful things that God has been doing through him for the past three years on this third missionary journey. But then, uh, no sooner does Paul give the offering to the Jerusalem church, the Jerusalem elders then say, we have a problem. And the problem is with you, Paul. The problem is that there's a lot of Jewish Christians here in the city, and they've been told what you're teaching out there outside of Israel. And they've been told that you've been teaching that Jews no longer need to circumcise their children, and that Jews no longer need to follow the customs of Moses, and they're quite upset about this. Now we talked last week about the fact that that was mostly true. However, there was an important nuance that they didn't quite grasp. And the nuance was this. Yes, Paul was teaching that circumcision or uncircumcision amounts to nothing. 
that the customs of Moses amount to nothing. And so Paul was teaching that you do not circumcise your children and you do not follow the customs of Moses if you believe that they are saving you or they are making you any more favorable before God or if they are gaining you influence before God or if they're gaining you uh, more favor before God, if you believe in your heart that keeping the customs of Moses or circumcising your children is adding to your salvation or making you eligible for salvation or any of those things, then you should not do them. Because they are a barrier in your mind and in your heart to the gospel of grace. But otherwise, Paul says, if you don't believe that, if you understand that you are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, yet being saved by grace alone, by the cross of Christ, by faith in the completed work of, of Jesus on the cross, if you understand that, yet you still feel as though you should keep the customs of Moses or you still circumcise your children, understanding that that is not adding to your salvation in any way, then Paul says it doesn't make any difference whether you do that or don't do that. So that's the full teaching that Paul is giving. However, the Christians in Jerusalem have heard a perverted version of what Paul is teaching, and they're not quite happy about that. And so the Jerusalem elders say to Paul, we've got a solution for this. And here's the solution. The solution is... We want you to purify yourself to go through this Jewish rite of purification. And then we want you to sponsor through, uh, four of these Jewish Christians in their completion of the Nazarite vow. You, we want you to be the one who offers the sacrifices that completes their vow for them. And what, this, what we hope this will do was this will show all of the Jerusalem Christians that you are a good Jew. That you're not their enemy. That you're not someone from the outside. You are one of them. And we hope that this will smooth over the conflict. And so, as we said last week, Paul submits to this, and he does this, even though that this is something that we, we could greatly criticize Paul for. However, we talked last week about how his motive is one of love, and his, love, his motive, is, motive is one of unity in the church. So he submits to this, and then picking up here in verse 27 of chapter 21, this is where we'll pick up for today. Picking up in verse 27, we saw last week that this doesn't work at all. doesn't even work... Uh, not even for the seven days of purification. So beginning from verse 27 here, Acts chapter 21. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. So, the seven days of purification haven't even been completed yet, and here starts another issue, another riot with Paul at the center of it. And all of this comes about, Luke tells us, that the Jew, because the Jews are upset, because they see Paul with this man Trophimus, and they assume... Or, let me back up. They see Paul with Trophimus. Then they see Paul in the temple. And they assume that Paul has brought Trophimus into the temple. Trophimus is a, Jew, a, a Gentile. He's an Ephesian. And so they recognize him and they assume that Paul has brought him into the temple. Luke is very careful to tell us that the assumption was wrong. Luke says that they, they suppose that he brought Trophimus into the temple. Which Paul did not do that. Luke's pretty clear to tell us that that was that was a false assumption that they make on his part. And so they, they raise a big ruckus. 
Because in those days, understand that, that the temple, of course, allowed Gentiles in it. Into what's called the outer courtyard of the temple. The Gentile courtyard is what it's called. And Gentiles were welcome in there, but at the, at the barrier wall, the dividing wall between the courtyard of the Gentiles and the inner temple, not the innermost holy of the holies, but the inner section of the temple, that area was for Jewish men only. And there were signs every, every few feet that would say, under penalty of death, does a Gentile or a woman enter into this area here. So not even the Romans were allowed to go in there. And so that's the area that they suppose that Trophimus has been taken into, and they're quite upset about it. Which, by the way, imagine the awkwardness for Paul. Here's Paul in Jerusalem with Trophimus and other Gentiles that have been led to faith in Christ through Paul. And yet Paul cannot take them into the place of God that he can go into. There's a, there's a distinction between where Paul can go and where Gentile Christians can go. Imagine the awkwardness of that for Paul. I would liken it to maybe the 1950s during the days of segregation. I mean, I, I wasn't alive in those days, but I would, I would imagine it would be something like maybe if you were a white Christian and you had a black Christian as a good friend, and there were places that you couldn't go with them because of the color of their skin. It's kind of the same sort of comparison here. Because of his ethnicity, because of his ethnic race, Paul cannot take this brother in Christ into a place that is supposedly a place of God. So imagine the awkwardness there. But Paul, as we know, doesn't take him into there. It would have been, it would have been foolish for Paul to take a Gentile into the Jewish area of the temple. Because what's the whole point of what Paul's doing? The whole point is to bring about unity between Jews and Gentiles. And so how foolish would it have been for Paul to do this? So he doesn't do what they accuse him of doing. Nevertheless, they're quite upset about it. Now there's another point for us to make note of. Paul is accused of doing something that he did not do. If we follow Christ, we should expect to be criticized and to be demeaned for things that aren't true about us. We should just expect that. We need to get over this, this uh, false understanding that we are only open to criticism that's true about us. Because, you know, we get quite upset when people criticize us and the criticism is untrue. And I know exactly how it feels. In fact, just a couple of weeks ago, uh, my wife and I, were we, were we were heavily criticized for something that was untrue about us. And it wasn't in the context of this church at all. It was something in another context, but we were heavily criticized for something that was completely untrue about us. And that hurts. And what you want to do is you want to say, no, I will accept your criticism if it's accurate, but I won't accept it if it's not accurate. We need to get over that, folks. If we follow Christ, we will be criticized, and much of it will be false. Jesus was criticized falsely, wasn't he? He's a drunkard. Was Jesus a drunkard? Of course not. He was criticized as being one. And so we need to be prepared for that. As we follow Christ, the criticism that's launched against us will not all be accurate. And that's okay. Because it wasn't accurate for Jesus either. So they criticize Paul here because they say he's done something that he hasn't done. He's taken Trophimus into the inner part of the temple. And they're quite upset about that. Now, notice who it is that's upset. Luke tells us in verse 27 that it was not the Jews from Jerusalem, but it was the Jews from Asia. 
So the whole concern was over the Jews from Jerusalem, that the Jerusalem Jews were going to be the ones who didn't accept Paul. However, as it turns out, it was the Asian Jews who were quite upset with Paul. They're the ones that start this whole riot that we're going to talk about today. Now, when Luke talks about the Jews from Asia, he doesn't mean Asia the continent, like we think of China or Vietnam or Korea. He means Asia, the Roman province of Asia. Today, that would be present-day Turkey. Now, the capital of the Roman province of Asia was Ephesus. In fact, Trophimus is an Ephesian. He's from, Luke tells us in the passage, he's from Ephesus. So the Jews from Asia recognize Paul, and they recognize Trophimus, which tells us that the Jews from Asia were probably Jews from Ephesus. Makes sense, right? So here's these Jews from Ephesus that are in Jerusalem. They recognize Trophimus. They see Paul. But they've also seen something else, haven't they? What else did they see? They saw a great revival. Remember the Ephesian revival? You remember how the Christians in Ephesus were so convicted of their sins that they brought their books of witchcraft and they brought their books of the occult and their books of magic and they burned them in the bonfire and that sparked this huge citywide revival that was so powerful and so profound that it literally changed that city that people turned from the worship of idols to such a degree that the ones who made idols no longer could make a living because people weren't buying idols anymore? If these Jews from Ephesus saw that, which I believe they did, then they're discounting all of that in lieu of one tradition, in lieu of one custom. In other words, they see the custom, the tradition that they hold to as more important than all the miraculous work of God that he did in Ephesus. When all of the people, Jew and Gentile alike, believer and non-believer alike, were turning from the worship of idols. They discounted all of that and criticized Paul because he violated one tradition. I see a parallel there. I see a comparison there. Because how often... Today, are we willing to discount the work of God, the visible, evident work of God, because it seems to be done through channels and through ways that are different from our tradition? Right? I see it very profoundly in sort of this tension that exists today between what we call the traditional model church and the contemporary model church. We, we are a traditional model church. That means that when we come together and we worship, we do it in a way that it is very much like it's been done for a long time. We have pews, we have choir loft and a choir, we have a, a pulpit, um, where our worship services just look like they've looked for a long time, right? The, the pastor wears a coat and tie, that sort of thing. But there's another model of church today, you know what I'm talking about, it's called the contemporary model, and when they come together to worship, it looks very little like what we do in terms of aesthetics and, and how it happens and how the worship looks and feels. It looks and feels very different from what we do. And among the those that are in the traditional church, we launch a lot of criticism towards the contemporary model of church because they seem to violate traditions that we think are valuable. And all the while, we can ignore the fact that who's reaching the most lost people? Not, no comparison. Far and away, 
contemporary model churches are reaching lost, unchurched people far greater than traditional model churches are today. And I just think that's a helpful point for us to see that Jews from Asia were willing to discount all the mighty things that God had done in Ephesus because they were upset about Paul violating a tradition that they thought was more important than the work of God. And I see a parallel there. So they're upset about this. They complain about this. They stir up the crowd. Now moving on from verse to verse 30, then all the city was stirred up and the people ran together. They seized Paul, dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. Now that verse right there is a significant verse. They seized Paul, dragged him out of the temple. So Paul is the center of another riot once again. How many, how many times is Paul the center of a riot? Seems like everywhere he goes, a riot breaks out, and it's all because of him. Um, Iconium, Lystra, Berea, uh, Thessalonica, uh, Philippi, um, now Jerusalem, Ephesus, right? The, everywhere Paul goes, the riot police need to follow him because a riot is likely to happen. So a riot breaks out here. They seize Paul. They drag him out of the temple. That is the last time Paul will ever enter the temple in his life. And then they shut the gates. A lot of people find symbolic significance in the fact that they drag Paul out of the temple and shut the gates. And the significance they see there is that just as the temple gates were shut, so also were the hearts of the Jewish people shut. Because you know what? The Jewish people, by this point, have experienced just about all the revival they're going to experience. A lot of Jewish people have come to faith in Christ. I mean, all the apostles were Jews. And a lot of other Jews in Jerusalem have come to faith in Christ. But the antagonism against Paul and the antagonism against the gospel of free grace is growing and growing. And this is about it for the revival of the Jews. And a lot of people see a significance, a connection here. The, the gates of the temple are shut, and in a more important way, the hearts of the Jewish people are shut at this point to the gospel. So they drag him out, they shut the gates, verse 31, and as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. Once again, there's a mob mentality. Wherever there's a mob, there's confusion. And so they're in confusion. Verse 32, he at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. So he responds right away. He hears that there's unrest and he grabs soldiers and he grabs centurions. Notice that centurions is in the plural. Now centurion, we are probably aware of the fact that a centurion was over 100 Roman soldiers. He was in charge of 100 Roman soldiers. And because there's more than one centurion, we can assume here that there's at least 200 Roman soldiers that respond to this. Because one thing was definitely true about the Romans. The Romans did not tolerate unrest. If there was a riot, if there was a protest, if there was a mob, the Romans clamped down on it right away. They did not tolerate any unrest in any of their, in any of their cities. So they respond right away. They grab these soldiers. They run down there. Then when they get there, verse 32, when they saw the, the, the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul, okay? All right, here comes the soldiers. So hands off. So they stopped beating Paul. Then verse 33, Then the tribune came up and arrested him, Paul, and ordered him, Paul, to be bound with two chains. So that's another significant verse there, verse 33. Paul is now bound in chains. This is the last time Paul will ever be a free man. Paul will be in chains or under guard or in bondage or under house arrest or something 
for the remainder of the story of Acts. This is the last time he will be a free man. He's put into chains now. But also notice what the chains did for Paul. The chains saved him. He was saved from the violence of the mob by being put in bondage. The bonding, the, the binding of Paul saved him. And I see another significance there. I see another parallel between that and our salvation. Because it is, isn't that how we're saved? We are saved from the bondage of sin by being bonded to Christ. We are saved from slavery to sin by becoming a slave to Christ. As Paul will say in Romans 1, verse 1, I'm a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Jesus says in Romans 8, verse 44, that everyone who sins is a slave to sin. So we are slaves for our entire existence. Every moment of your existence, you are a slave. You're either a slave to sin, an enemy of God, or you're a slave to Jesus Christ. You'll always be a slave. The question for, for us is, will we be a slave to a harsh, cruel taskmaster? Or will we be a slave to a loving, generous, forgiving God? So Paul is saved by being put into bondage here in the same way we're saved by being put into bondage to Christ. But then continuing verse 33, he inquired who he was and what he had done. Now, verse 34, some of the crowd were shouting one thing and some another. And he could not learn the facts because of the uproar. That's, that, you can just picture that in your mind, can't you? Here's Paul. He's bloodied up and beaten up. The soldiers come. They arrest him. They put him in chains. And they're, and they're standing around. Okay, what happened? Who is this? What's going on? And then everybody around them is shouting, He's so-and-so. He did this. And there's so much noise that they can't figure out what's going on. And so wisely, he says, we need to get him out of here to figure this whole thing out. So he could not learn the facts because of the uproar. So he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. Verse 35, and when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. So when they were beating him, they did some damage. Luke told us earlier that their intention wasn't to hurt him. Their intention was to kill him. So they had done some damage to Paul because he literally can't stand now. He is in bondage. He's probably maybe shackled. So that's... that's uh, that's uh, not helping them to stand either. But because of the violence committed against him, he's unable to stand. How many times has, has Paul suffered bodily for the gospel? How many times has he suffered physically for the gospel? I doubt any of us have ever suffered physically for the gospel. I haven't. But Paul has suffered repeatedly physically in his body for the gospel. So they hold him up, they carry him, verse 36, for the mob of the people followed, crying out, Away with him. Now we've heard those words before. Away with him. Because that's what the people shouted as Jesus stood before Pilate and the people. And they said, away with him. Away with him. Then verse 37, as Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? So the tribune is surprised. Paul speaks to him in Greek. But if we were to look at the, the language that Luke uses there, we can see that the tribune is not surprised that Paul is able to speak Greek, but what he's really surprised by is that Paul speaks Greek well. That he speaks Greek correctly, or he, he speaks not the Koine language of the common people, but he speaks a refined Greek. And so he speaks to this tribune in this refined, educated type of Greek, and the tribune is, is impressed by this. Paul makes a connection with it. Now let me show us 
why it is that Paul makes a connection with the tribune by speaking Greek to him. If we flip over to chapter 23, and we look in chapter 23 down to verse 26, we learn the name of this tribune that arrested Paul on this day. And we see in verse 26 his name is, or was, Claudius Lysias. Now Claudius was the name of the current emperor, Emperor Claudius. And it was a tradition in those days that whatever the name of the current emperor was, if you were a ranking officer in the military, or if you were in the government, or if you were an important person or whatever, what you did was you took the name of the emperor. So if the emperor was Claudius, then there was a whole bunch of Claudiuses around. If the emperor was Julius, then there was a whole bunch of Juliuses, right? That was their way of honoring their emperor. But his second name, his real name, was Lysias. Now Lysias is a Greek name. So this man was from Greece. Greek was his native language. That was his first language. So you see how Paul connected with him? He made a connection with him that, that, that spoke to him in a way that opened him up to Paul because Paul was able to speak his language. I think that's a good reminder for us this morning of the necessity to be able to speak the language of lost people. To relate to lost people in the language that they speak. And, and what I mean is not Greek or Spanish or whatever. What I mean is to be able to relate to lost people. To understand how they view life and what their problems are, what their issues are. Because you know what? It's so easy for us to just get swallowed up in a little Christian bubble to where we come to find out that everybody we know and everybody with whom we spend time is also a church believer. I have found that to be true myself. There's been times... Where I ask myself, all right, I need to write down the name of every person that I have a relationship with that is not church. And I couldn't come up with anybody. Because it's so easy to fall into that bubble. Everybody you know is a Christian. Everybody you know goes to church. And here's what happens when you fall into that bubble. Not only are you not being effective for the kingdom, but you quickly forget what it's like to not know Jesus. You forget what it's like to not be part of a church. And you forget that all those little phrases that we use and all the, the way of thinking that we have that's informed by God's Word, it's foreign to unchurched people. They don't get it. Sometimes it's like we're from another planet or we're speaking another language. So how do we avoid that? You know lost people. You have unchurched people in your life. You, you proactively purposely build relationships with unchurched people. And then you're able to speak their language. You're able to understand the issues of their heart. Because you know what? There's a sense in which their problems are the same, because all people are people, but there's a sense in which they're not. Because everything they face, they face it without hope. And so that can color all the problems and all the issues of their life in a very different way than yours. And sometimes we can forget how to relate to people like that. Paul relates to him. He speaks his language. So he says, do you know Greek? In verse 38, are you not Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? This was an incident that had happened previously, this armed Jewish revolt. The tribune has assumed that Paul is the leader or was the leader of this revolt. And so it's important that Paul tells him, that it's important that he understands that Paul is not a lawbreaker. He's not a vigilante. 
Christ's followers were, were not to be lawbreakers, were not to be vigilantes, unless the law, of course, requires us to, to sin against God. So it's important that Paul says, no, that's not me. Verse 39, Paul replied, I'm a Jew from Tarsus and Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioning with his hands to the people, and when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language, saying, Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. At that word defense, the rest of the book of Acts is all about Paul's defense. He's going to defend himself before Jews. He's going to defend himself before Romans. And that's going to consume everything left in the story of Acts. So Paul is either standing trial or on his way to a trial for the rest of the story of Acts. So he stands up to make his defense, this courageous defense. Remember, he's, he's almost been beaten to death at this point. I mean, he literally can't stand because of the beating that he just took. But he stands up in front of this mob and with great courage is going to speak to them in this way. You know, the gospel of Jesus Christ gives us courage in a unique way, doesn't it? The fact that we know that we are children of the King, we know that our sins are forgiven, we know that we have peace with God, right relationship with God, we know that Jesus Christ is with us, He will never leave us, never forsake us. All those things give us courage in a unique way. Like Jesus would say to His disciples, when you're drugged before kings and when you're drugged before councils, don't worry about what you're going to say. I will be with you and I will give you the words to say. So with great courage, He stands up, brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that He was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. So He's speaking to them now in Hebrew. Hebrew at this time was a language that had fallen out of favor. Many Jews didn't even know Hebrew. They didn't speak Hebrew. Greek and Latin were by far more common languages. So he's speaking to them in the ancient language, in the language of their fathers, in the, the language that is the Jewish language. And what he's going to say from verse 1, verse, I'm sorry, verse 3, all the way down through verse 21, the whole point is going to be, I'm one of you. I am a Jew, faithful to the law, educated in the law, zealous for the law. There's only one difference. I have recognized Jesus Christ as the Messiah, and you have. That's the whole point of what he's going to say. He's going to say it to them in the Hebrew, and his goal is to show them, I'm not an outsider, I'm an insider. So it says, verse 3, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus and Cilicia, and brought up in this city. Brought up means that he was born in Tarsus, but... At an early age, he was brought to Jerusalem. He grew up in Jerusalem. He was brought here to Jerusalem. Educated at the feet of Gamaliel. Everybody, everybody would have known the name Gamaliel because he was the most well-known, the most popular Jewish teacher of the law. Brought up, uh, educated at the feet of Gamaliel according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers. The strict manner means he was a Pharisee. The Pharisees were the strict observers of the law. Being zealous. For, for God, as all of you are this day. I'm one of you, being zealous for God, just like you are. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers. I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. In other words, it doesn't get more zealous than me. You're zealous for the law because you think I've violated the law, but I'm here to tell you that 
I respect the law and have adhered to the law to a greater degree than even yourself. And Paul wasn't ashamed of that. You know, Paul was never ashamed of his Jewish heritage. He was never ashamed of his Jewish heritage. He would say to the Philippians, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews, a Pharisee of Pharisees. He was never ashamed of his Jewish heritage. What he was ashamed of, is what we'll get to in a minute, what he was ashamed of was the fact that he persecuted the church. But he was never ashamed of the fact that he was born a Jew and brought up in the Jewish ways because it was the Jewish people who were God's chosen people. It was the Jewish people to whom God gave the law, to whom He gave the, the, the Scriptures and the Word of God. So Paul was never ashamed of that aspect. But then continuing on verse 6, As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now, those who were with me saw the light, but they didn't understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see, because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. Now we're not going to get through what I plan to get through today. I'd hope to get, get down through verse uh, 22. But we're not going to get through that because I want to leave some time for the supper afterwards. So we'll, we'll stop here. This is Paul's conversion on the Damascus Road. This is the second time that we have heard of this. Chapter 9 is when it occurred. Here Paul is retelling it. He's going to retell it again in chapter 26. Don't close your Bibles. We're not done quite yet. I'm just saying we're going to stop at that point. He's going to retell it again in chapter 26. And then he's going to tell it two more times in his letters. So five times the New Testament tells us of the conversion of Paul. If the New Testament tells us something five times, would you say it's unimportant or important? I'd say it's important, right? And what's important about the conversion of Paul are two things. Two aspects of the conversion of Paul, one of which we'll talk about next week, but I am going to talk about the other one today. Two things about the conversion of Paul. First is the bright light. The bright light, the blinding light. We'll talk about that next week. But the other aspect of the conversion of Paul that's important for us is the words of Jesus. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It was those words that convicted Paul. It was those words that converted Paul. Why did Paul find those words to be so convicting? He found them to be so convicting because at that moment he realized that instead of working for God, he was God's enemy. It was at that moment that he realized that he was an enemy of God. You know, I truly believe that most people outside of Christ don't see themselves as the enemy of God. They don't see themselves as living against God. I think that most unbelievers see themselves as living for themselves. And there's a sense in which outside of Christ we are living for ourselves. We're worshiping ourselves. We are on the throne of our life. But there's a bigger sense in which we're not living for ourselves so much as we are living against God. That we are His declared open Enemies, and I truly believe that most unbelievers don't get that. 
I think probably most Christians don't even get that, that there is absolutely no fence on which to sit. Like Jesus will say in Luke 11, verse 23, if you are not with me, you are against me. If you are not gathering with me, you are scattering. In other words, every activity of your life is doing one of two things. It's either working for the kingdom of God or it's working against the kingdom of God. Because there is no fence on, on which we can sit. But instead, I think we, we, we tend to think of life outside of Christ as only living for ourselves, putting ourselves first, living, living for ourselves. And that is not a big problem, is it? If, in other words, we can easily justify living for ourselves. In fact, our world commends that sort of thing. Our world justifies and, and, and actually praises putting yourself first, looking out for yourself. Because it's not very convicting to be brought to the understanding that, hey, I'm living for me more than I'm living for God. However, if we truly get it, that we're not living for ourselves, we're living for God's enemy. We are His Tool. We are the tool of God's enemy. We are the enemy of God. If we come to that realization, that is enormously convicting for us. In the 1970s, there was a man by the name of Kashi who grew up in the poverty of Singapore. Kashi lived on the streets. His family never had anything. He hardly knew his mother, never saw his father. Grew up on the streets, never had anything his whole life. And the streets of Singapore are tough. But Kashi had a dream his whole life. He dreamed of being somebody. He dreamed of having stuff. He dreamed of cars. And he dreamed of clothes. And he dreamed of houses. And he dreamed of women. And he dreamed of having things. And growing up in the poverty streets of Singapore, the only way that he could get those things was through crime. And so Kashi began smuggling first drugs. And he began smuggling guns. Then he became part of the mob, the mafia there in Singapore. And he rose up to, in the ranks of the, of the Singapore gangs to the, eventually to the point that he was the lord of the Singapore gangs. And by that point, he had gotten everything that he thought he wanted. He had cars, he had women, he had houses, he had clothes, he had everything that money could buy. All those things that he thought he was living for. And in the process of all that, he developed a real nasty habit. He developed a habit of chainsmoking. Well, as you know, what happened to Kashi is what typically happens to most in that lifestyle. In 1980, he was busted by the police. And he was sent to prison. And because he was the lord of the Singapore gangs, they couldn't put him into the general population. They instead put him, put him into solitary confinement. And so he finds himself in this cell, this one little cell, and that cell took away from him everything that he'd lived for. It took away from him his cars. It took away the women. It took away the clothes. It took everything that he thought was making his life worthwhile. Everything that he had lived for, it took it away from him at that moment. And it even took away the smoking. He really struggled with that part. So being involved with the gangs there in Singapore, he found a way to smuggle tobacco into his cell. But he found that he couldn't smuggle in cigarettes. He could smuggle in tobacco, but not cigarettes. So he would smuggle in this tobacco and he would roll it. And the only thing he had to roll it in, which was the pages of a Gideon Bible. He did that for months. Smoking 
smuggled in tobacco, rolled in the paper, the thin paper of a Gideon Bible. Until one day, he fell asleep on his cot while smoking one of his cigarettes. Wakes up later to find out that the cigarette didn't burn itself out, but it went out. He thought this was interesting, so he looked at it and unrolled it, kind of like the fortune in a fortune cookie. Unrolled it just to see what it said, and there was only one sentence that was legible on that piece of paper, and you know what it was. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? At that moment, he was intrigued by that sentence. And so he asked for another Gideon Bible, which they brought to him. And he read the story of the conversion of Saul, and he came to realize that he was just like Saul. He was God's enemy. He wasn't living for himself. He was living contra God, against God. And that was what brought him to conviction. And on the floor of that cell, as the tears poured out, Freedom from Christ came as he was converted to himself. Because he realized that he wasn't living for himself, but he was God's enemy. That's powerful for the Christian to realize. It's powerful for the lost person to realize. Because what that does is it does the same thing that it did for Paul. That sentence that Jesus spoke to him defined the rest of his life. Paul was constrained by this knowledge that he had been the enemy of God and yet God had mercy on him. In your sermon notes here, he says to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1, I thank Him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because He judged me faithful, appointing me to His service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent. Paul never got over the fact that God had mercy upon his enemy as he was persecuting his son. Take your Bibles and flip over just to Romans 5. The next book over, Romans chapter 5. And look at how Paul puts it here. Romans chapter 5, beginning verse 6. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the who? For the ungodly. For one who will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would even dare to die. In other words, you might find somebody who would give their life for a good person, for a friend. Would you give your life for a friend? Maybe. But try finding somebody who will give their life for an enemy. Verse 8, But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, while we were His enemy, Christ died for us. That's what constrained Paul, was the knowledge that God sent His Son and His Son died for the one who was persecuting His Son. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? You ever been persecuted? I don't mean to compare, to compare that to, to what God's talking about here, but have you ever had somebody who was just opposed to you and just was against you? doesn't feel good. You ever had somebody persecute a child? <laughs> you ever had somebody treat a child unfairly? That's what Saul was doing to God. He was treating his child unfairly. He was persecuting God's son. And yet God had mercy on him. That was what constrained Paul for the rest of his life. 
Let me suggest to you this morning to meditate upon that. To meditate on the fact that God has had mercy upon you and you are just some wayward son like the prodigal son just sort of going out doing your own thing. You were his enemy when he had mercy upon you and he loved you enough to demonstrate in the maximum possible way to give his son for your salvation.